Hello and welcome to the Digital Afterlife of Grief. I am Ginger Lou, and here I talk about, uh, well, as the title of the, uh, the podcast says, about the digital afterlife um, and um, other AI technology that has to do with it as well, because I am an artist and uh, specifically a photographer. And um, the research that I do is um, really specific for that in the digital afterlife and the death tech industry, because we are now... Um, you know, using photography in different ways and perhaps even, um, you know, digital personas are going to replace photography as our means uh, to uh, connection and like our communication to people who have died. Because as you can imagine, for the last 150 years or so, with the beginning of photography, photography has been omnipresent. Photogra- a photograph of our dead loved ones is what the connection that we have with them of course and we've had you know videos and things like that but it's it's specifically the photograph that we put on our walls on our mantelpieces to and our in photo books to remember our our uh, you know our dead loved ones so now with the uh, death tech industry which is not a new industry it's just getting a lot of press since last summer where um you know ai generative ai have created um you know um you know a, a, a moving f- photograph as it were an animated photograph and that's one one version of it and then another one is ai to uh you know ask questions um you do a video first of um before you die obviously to answer all these questions and so it's kind of something to to leave to your grandchildren as it were um you know, but as as this technology gets a bit more sophisticated, and you know, there there are bots out there where you can chat to a bot. Um, some of them are sex bots, of course. We're all gonna go down that road because that is human nature. Um, but also as you know, comfort and friendship bots, but also for bereavement too. And there is a fine line between. Well, you know, especially when we're in that bereavement time, which is, um, you know, I, like a lot of people, have gone through um, a lot of grief and bereavement after the death of my parents. And, um, you know, that bereavement stage, you're very delicate and you would sell your own family to have one more day talking uh, and communicating with your, you know, your absolutely dearest loved ones we would do we would we would do anything and so we're in a very delicate state and of course like photography before like um you know companies or inventors etc can kind of if you look at it as a seedy kind of uh way can take advantage of the recently bereaved because we're at that very emotional state and um we can purchase um and you know that what they did in the past was um you know there was photographs of um um you know of their dead relatives because you know photography was a very expensive thing to um thing to um uh, to purchase at that time 150 years ago and so um very often that picture of their dead child or dead partner was the only photograph that they they had of them and so, um, you know, to today's world, it might look a bit creepy. I don't think it does at all. It's about love. Um, it's about wanting to, you know, having having that image of their loved ones. Um, 
we're doing exactly the same now um except uh you know we're having videos or bots of our uh, of our dead loved ones uh, so that we can remember them by and we're a bit more used to it now because uh because you know there's a lot of people doing it but um so i'm i'm got talking about staying alive in the ai death tech industry the ethics of creating a virtual person of someone are complex who owns the data and what about consent i mean feeding the digital afterlife zeitgeist are tech giants who are eager to build a synthetic heaven where big egos go to die in 2021 microsoft patented a controversial chatbot designed to offer a real person to allow users to have virtual conversations with the deceased at the same time you only virtual was founded as an app that creates the essence of the relationship between you and your loved ones enabling automatic uh, authentic conversations with the deceased. Their logo, never have to say goodbye, is either a terrifying glimpse of a digital future populated by the restless dead or a more economical method of bereavement therapy. The death tech company Etamine is boldly, what they say on their website, looking to solve an incredibly challenging problem of humanity. It's not biological death that it seeks to cure, but the pre preservation of our digital personas for all eternity. In 2016, James Vlahas created an AI chatbot of or Dadbot from conversations with his late father. In 2019, Dadbot became Hereafter AI, a web application that, according to the website, helps preserve meaningful me memories about your life and interactively share them with the people you love. It encourages users to share aspects of their personality, their essence, stories and memories to create a virtual you. Also, that's what it says on their website. Writing in MIT Technology, Charlotte G was given access to a new service here after AI, as just mentioned, and asked if we were ready to talk to our dead loved ones through our communication devices. Here after AI's goal is to let the living communicate with the dead with technology that lets you talk. They boast that the digital replica is an authentic representation of the deceased that uses data from interviews while the person is still alive. After the, their death, those left behind can communicate with their dead loved ones through Alexa or Amazon Echo devices or an app. G trialed the platform on her still living mum and dad and their voices lived inside an app on her phone to, as a voice assistant. The California-based company is powered by more than four hours of conversations her parents each had with a real human interviewer. G's parents are asked questions about their lives and memories. In a space of a year, advances in AI and voice technology replaced human interviews with a bot. See, replacing jobs already, guys. Startups working in the death tech or grief tech industry have created different approaches but similar promises that enable users to talk by video, chat, text, phone or voice assistance with a digital version of the deceased. Eugene Okuda founded the Replica Chatbot app after her close friend died and was designed to provide valuable conversations of the kind we have with family and friends, therapists and mentors. The website calls it the AI companion who cares. Replica and other chatbots were created by inventors who had watched the television episode Be Right Back from the science fiction drama series Black Mirror, which came out in 2013. In it, a woman is bereaved after her husband dies in a car crash and is coerced into using technology that allows her to communicate with an AI that imitates her dead husband using data from his phone and social networks. Be Right Back connected to tech engineers and the bereaved around the world and pretty soon chatbot services were designed to provide a limited two-way connection to our dead that increasingly impacted how we engage with death, legacy and remembrance. 
The technology to speak to our dead relatives has been reintroduced to consumers by death tech companies like Storyfile and other market-driven startups. I use the term reintroduced because similar device services have been around for more than a decade and the technology was limited and more importantly, consumers were not ready. For instance, Etemi founder Marius Urshash started his company in 2014 and although it gained a lot of publicity, it failed to ignite the imagination of enough customers sustained it and by 2018 the company has expired. Digital personas of an active passive presence after death, passive memorial, excuse me I'll say that again, passive memorialization is one-way interaction where the dead are silent and the bereaved interact such as on Facebook memorial pages. Active presence is a two-way interaction such as conversational avatar or chatbot. The distinction between the live physical person and the dead is becoming increasingly foggy and blurred. Chat-based versions of digital immortality like Hereafter and Storyfile help us to confront our own mortality and the legacy we leave behind. Personalised chatbots or voice avatars seek to answer questions based on information provided while alive and are no less subjective than an autobiography. I mean, we control how we want to be remembered after we die, right? I mean, interactive internet-based technologies are transforming the ways in which we understand death, grieving and coping with loss. Online communication together with changes in social and religious attitudes in Western society has created a space where the individual is part of the collective. So the societal uh, lockdowns during COVID-19 produced a radical shift in communication that affected traditional death rituals. Saying goodbye to and remembering the recently deceased was conducted on online video streaming platforms. Last August, my 99-year-old aunt passed away in Southern California. Her extended family resides across the United States and the wider world. For those who could not attend in person, a Zoom wake was organised, which included a slideshow documenting her 99 years, and attendees were given time to say a few words of remembrance. And you know what? It felt absolutely normal and fine. In fact, you know, having that option um, was, you know... It was beautiful because for many of us, we couldn't attend the funeral um, in person. And so to have that option of, you know, a Zoom wake so that we could be part of this wider family around the world, um, especially for international families like myself, um, you know, and to say, you know, a few words, it, it was it was something that was wonderful rather than feeling a bit upset and sad that we couldn't actually attend the funeral um, in person. So, uh, and of course, you know, would we have felt that normal? Would we have wanted to do it before COVID-19 where Zoom chats were the the very normal thing to do for everybody? Perhaps not, perhaps um, not for me. I mean, I'm, I'm used to doing video conferencing for, for many years, even before COVID, but you know, for for other, you know, perhaps some, you know, other people in the family, uh, different generations, that would have been a bit weird and probably something that they didn't want to do. So, you know, it, it takes something big. You know, big things happened after Second World War. Big changes. Big changes happened after the First World War. Lots of big changes happened after COVID nineteen, um, for the good or the bad. Anyway. Technology's role in mediating the presence of the dead is embedded in human practices. Right now. The big companies 
uh, own your data and survivors have little access to their loved one's digital archive unless permission was granted prior to death. The death industry is ripe for disruption and Ballater suggests a reinterpretation of how an economic system perpetuates grief. It is rather technology's role as a commodity or a means in the production process that is driving force in a shape, shaping the presence of the dead. The ethics of virtual of creating a virtual version of someone are complex. Who owns the data and what about consent? There's also a risk for the recently bereaved that this kind of communication could prolong grief and they could lose their grip on reality. A service that creates a digital replica of someone without their participation raises complex ethical issues regarding consent and privacy. Companies are not obliged to check that users of their services are consensual or in fact have died. Feeding the digital afterlife zeitgeist are tech giants who are eager to build a synthetic heaven where big egos go to die. The idea of a synthetic heaven is offensive to many with long-standing religious beliefs, perhaps. You know, even, those, even though those same beliefs are as synthetic as digital data, we are living in an AI-powered matrix future, and the richest man in the world agrees. Recently, a Twitter user commented that Elon Musk uses the platform to construct a digital replica of our personality in a digital afterlife. Musk responded, maybe we're already in it. Immortality is not impossible and certainly not for big tech billionaires like Thiel, Bezos and Musk. Way back in 2012, PayPal founder Peter Thiel stated that death is a problem that can be solved. American data science Emily Gozensky sees a future where humans will be separated into digital personalities living in computer servers with a labor class maintaining that computers. To understand the metaverse means you have to understand that rich techno nerds genuinely believe they will be able to upload their conscience before they die, she says. The consideration of identity and ethics, digital afterlife and immortality are things to consider when creating a digital copy of oneself. Human consciousness or essence transferred to another entity would break continuity, according to Jandrick. According to Heidegger, authenticity is a means to grasp the uniqueness of the individual. Both subject and object are inseparable and reflect Scott's notions of humans being as subjective spectators of objects, with the subject being inseparable from the objective world. He defines authenticity as a means to grasp dasein, or being, as unique to human beings in the world. There is a paradox of being singular, independent, and alone while being amongst other people in the world. It is how we fit in and interpret the world around us that makes us unique. Being developed through the age that has as a character of a technological framework in which humans approach the world in a controlling and dominating world. Being in time addresses what it means for a human being to exist temporarily between birth and death. Being in time, and time is finite and ends with our death, according to Heidegger. With our increasingly technical world, our digital and virtual worlds, Heidegger argues that technical objects are means for an end and are operated by humans. But the essence of technology is not anything technological. Technology is a way of revealing truth, he says. Reality is not the same in different cultures. Reality isn't certain and knowable and true and absolute. It exists in relations. Reality is inaccessible. Technology is a way of revealing, a specific way of revealing the world where humans control reality, production and manipulation. Being human is a relation of being. We care about how we are perceived in the world around us. This being in question for oneself is directed by how we conduct ourselves over our lives. Our being or identity is in constant turmoil while we figure out who we are over multiple lives and identities in relation to ourselves, how to project onto others and how others perceive us. 
Understanding of being is about human agency, being in the world. We enact roles and characters to cope with the world and what it is to be human. From the post-humanist perspective, existence and life are embodied. Technology transports itself where the body does not have to be physical or biological, but virtual, according to Sarah Kember. Francesca Ferrando suggests that our internet addiction makes physical presence no longer the main space of social interaction. The concept of human has been challenged while post-humanism and transhumanism are philosophical and scientific theories and inquiries. Technology is pivotal in the strive towards radical life extension and digital immortality. It's also indispensable and re-envisioning life as it is, she says. Much of the transhumanism debate is about rethinking the human through technology. Ray Kurzweil was known as the father of singularity movement which predicts an untethered technological world where technological humans will live forever. We will continue to have human bodies but they will become morphable projections of our intelligence. Ultimately software-based humans will vastly extend beyond the severe limitations of humans as we know them today, he says. According to Kurzweil, the next evolution is technology working alongside humans, not as replacements, but as collaborative partners. We're going to become increasingly non-biological to the point where non-biological dominates and the biological part is not important anymore, he says. Kurzweil's idea of singularity of a time when memory and consciousness will be uploaded and technologialized also describes the world we're living in now. A world of rapid technological change that has an impact on all sectors of human societies, and one that is hurtling faster and faster, changing life as we know it forever. Maggie Savin Baden and David Byrne define digital immortality as an active or passive digital presence of a person after death, with two categories of digital immortality. One way immortality is passive and read-only presence like Facebook and bots. The two way immortality is an interactive digital persona. Think of chatbots based on real people, interactive digital personas trained on real people. Replica is an interactive chatbot and is a bit like having a text conversation with a friend. At the other end of the scale is AI technology like Storyfile, which uses pre-recorded videos of the soon-to-be-departed, answering questions posed to them by their loved ones, allowing real-time conversations. The digital afterlife is the idea of a vertical space where data, assets, legacies and digital remains reside as part of the cyber soul and assumes a digital presence, according to Seven Baden. Digital grief concepts were developed to make sense of the ways in which digital technology is harnessed to commemorate and memorialize the dead. Digital grief practices are acceptable norms through media and digital media. Kafka argues that online persistence and the ongoing presence of the data of the dead leads to a more globalized, secularized and ongoing presence of the dead online on social media and other networks. Cultural shifts towards restless, posthumous existence and death are in stark contrast to the Victorian image of death asleep or rest. The restless dead online interrupt previous limitations of cemeteries with static headstones and finite biological death. In contrast, digital death is dynamic and interactive. Since early 2000, digital bereavement has grown exponentially in social networks and other online communities. Disenfranchised grievers have no social recognition of grief and many people use Facebook to help with loss because they lack the support they need in a society that expects them to get over death and move on. Online networks give validation and a connection with others that would otherwise be absent in the real world. Alves argues for the need to examine the impact that the internet has on social media are having in the evolution of grief. 
practices such as the end-of-life video conferences can cause anxiety for those not used to be the technology. There is a need to consider the emotional impact of digital afterlife engagement with the bereaved online. Ongoing visibility can be distressing. Alf say it's vital to create space of, of debate, discussions around death and dying, and an understanding of the values that people place on cyber mourning. Grief online is continually acknowledged communication and, and legitimised. Mitchell see online memorials as the driving cause behind prolonged grief. These surrogates of the disease not only accommodate grief, but perpetuate grief by enabling the disease to persist, they say. And furthermore, the web affords an ongoing grief that is unhinged partially from long-standing ideas of closure, a way of, of and separation of the living and the dead. According to Klastrup, there's a lack of shared norms on social media, resulting in the compartmentalization of death, a death that is no longer shared with religious vocabulary or belief that can't be vocalised when coping with bereavement, leaving the deceased uncertain about how to grieve properly. Warner suggests that the new norms like mourning online are constantly changing and are renegotiated by users of social media. The traditional hierarchy of the family is usurped by online users. The digital world opens up more, more spaces for mourning, and it's difficult to know the true impact on the bereaved because it's often hidden. Walter argues that there is need to consider body, spirit, and mourners together, what he calls the pervasive dead, which removes the idea of the dead's separation from the living society. Instead, he says, bonds continue and the online dead can appear any time. The purpose of grief is to construct a durable biography that allows survivors to continue to integrate the deceased person into the lives and find a safe place for them, according to Walter. Photographs, videos, social networks, letters and, and physical belongings are tangible and intangible vessels of remembrance. After your body dies, that le what legacy will you leave and what will happen to it over time? What tangible and digital traces will you leave behind for most of us our lives will be anonymous and forgotten tossed away in junk stores like tattered victorian photographs we have come to expect the traces of a dead person's life to settle into fixed spaces and objects and we assume their legacy the lessons they passed on or the examples they set as parents will one way or the other come to shape the lives of those that uh, they were close to when someone dies, there is a risk that their most precious objects will die with them. The very objects are an extension of an individual's own unique personality. The uniqueness of any given physical object existing in one place and time, it is with its own fragility, subjected to wear and tear of time, makes the bond established with its owner irreparable. Therefore, the internal aspect of the object is its storing rather than its objectness, according to Southern Budden. The personal objects that do remain after an individual's death cannot help but preserve the memory of the deceased. For those reasons, death cleaning reaffirms our understanding of the relationships that links life with death because it presents us with the reality of what was left behind after we were gone. Photos, letters and clothes will exist after we die. The Swedish approach of death cleaning prepares us for the inevitable in a calm and rational way. Belongings and keepsakes are put in order and organised to keep those items we want to keep for prosperity to carry on for future generations. Our unique and deep connection with our loved ones' objects. Does any of this matter once we are dead? Does any of this matter? Belongings and keepsakes are put on... Up. Belongings and keepsakes are put in order and organised to keep those items we wanted to keep for on for prosperity, to carry on for future generations. Our unique and deep understanding with our loved ones, objects. Does any of this matter after we are dead? 
There's no guarantee that those who are left behind will hold on to our legacy. And perhaps all that effort and money you put into creating an AI persona will one day end up in a flea market. According to Heidegger, accepting death tricks the, the anxiety of our existence because it frees our death, uh, fear of death. Anxiety in the face of death is not equal to the fear of death and it does not indicate a weak person or an arbitrary or random event, but is found from the stem existence. Existence open to the fact that they are launched towards the end of existence, according to Heidegger. Brodelard saw the shift from stucco angels to computer graphics that reflected changes impacted by culture, economics and politics. These changes reflected the structure representation of the gradual loss of the real objective world and its reference. The philosophy and representation, the original resemblance and imitation, the classic sign of signifier and signified, is a substitution of reality's image of the real. Nature is the ultimate referent. The Renaissance recreated the natural world. The industrial revolution reproduced the the natural world at at scale. And the digital world reimagined reproduction. The emblem resemblance was automation, the mechanical counterpart, the perfect double copy of a person. Cultural changes in the 17th and 18th centuries led to a new ideal in the Western world, according to Trilly. Humans were thought of as individuals and importance were placed on the individual, which is demonstrated in the emergence of single portraits and autobiographies. The individual is important and demands attention because he or she is an individual. To be human is to be unique, distinctive, and subsequently an awareness of one's private, unique individuality. And it's quite different from the public self. Therefore, authenticity is understood as being true to oneself. This concept of authenticity led to the development of the self and interiority of one's life guided by the inner self and thought. Foucault suggested that the interior life is guided by a religious and psychological culture that looks to inwards and to watch our interior life and tell truths about ourselves. Foucault opposed the idea of a hidden authentic self referring to the California cult of the self and that the individual must create oneself at work as a work of art. Instead of finding our true authentic selves we should create ourselves as a work of art with no real rules or tricks in a process of unending becoming. The robot is not made in a person's likeness but in her adjunct. The ambiguity between truth and falsity, reality and appearance from pre-industrial simulacrum is replaced by the disappearance of reality through the production and reproduction of systems. The industrial simulacrum is not a counterfeit but a product because of the image is fabricated and has no reference to the natural world. In the industrial simulacrum period, science no longer referred to the specific objects but to their meanings. The period also marked the the start of serial production. The question of origin has the opportunity of a finite, infinite number of individual objects, objects that are interchangeable and equivalent in market terms. It represents the devaluation from natural law to the market law of value and exchange. With a shift in representation in the visual arts, and in particular photography as a mode of serial production and reproduction, the photo- photograph was the archetype of industrial simulacrum, creating infinite number of identical copies. The increasing Circulation of such simulacra in societies testifies to reproduction's role as the core of industrial capital, according to Benjamin. Bourdieu argued that we know today that it's on the level of reproduction, fashion, media, publicity, information and communication networks on the level of what Marx negligently called the false lot of capital, meaning in the sphere of simulacra and code that the total process of capital is knit together, he said. Reality is subverted to the signifier. Reality is reproduced by the signifier, the models of signification. We move away from the society of production and to consumption. The computer 
machine produces reality according to its codes. The signifier becomes its own referent. The internet and the vast global network structures and the shifting nature of identity and the role images play in society that is mediated by images online. Baudrillard uses the term hyperreal and references cultural products like, or media like cinema and advertising. Hyperreal is a re representation of reality that can't be mistaken for a copy or replica or representation. Instead, it is treated as the real thing, as reality. Referring to television in the 20th century, he argues for the falsehood of a fly-on-the-wall American documentary series, The Loud Family, which came out in 1971. That's not true when there are cameras present. We don't actually... We don't act naturally. We are acting or affected by the cameras around us. I mean, that's obviously uh, blown to humongous effect now with um, you know platforms like TikTok where we all perform for the camera, right? What is real? Not probably not a lot, right? TV is not something that affects the viewer. What we affect TV, or in the twenty first century, we affect smartphones. Viewers form part of the same structure and DNA. We model ourselves on it, and it models itself on us. Broderlard argues that it is difficult to separate representation from reality because of a consumer society where electronic media maintains the illusion of actuality, he says. That keeps us buying and entertained. We are living in a simulation constructed by the media. We accept the object's authenticity because it resonates with, our, with its real or natural equivalent. Filming children playing in a garden is an example. It is a media copy of an original live event, capturing a moment in time to be viewed after the fact on our media devices. In the 20th century postmodern period, the science of reality replaced reality and there is destruction of meaning. These simulated forms generate an unreal, a real without origin, superficial surface statues, hyperreal production and artificial reality. Baudrillard argues that there is no reality left to represent. Simulation forms do not imitate reality in an illusionary manner as opposed to a copy. The double, the mirror which precedes and formulates the real, in contemporary existence, what we accept as reality is already simulated. Hyperreality is in place of reality. Truth no longer exists because there is no reference. Simulation is a world beyond truth, reference and causality. A fake or artificial world without meaning. It is no longer a question of imitation or duplication or even parody. It is a question of substituting the signs of the real for the real, according to Baudrillard. Postmodern culture is artificial and we need its sense of reality to recognise the artificial the artifice we have, but we have lost all sense of what is real or artificial. There is no distinction between reality and its representation, only the simulacrum. Frederick Jameson sees the period as the decline of effect and its replacement by effect. Effect surfaces a certain look, clearly artificial. Effect, um, new, a new object world and cultural style, a style invented and reflected off or is represented in a new technology and virtual world. Services destroy meaning and destroy value. Baudrillard argues that it's not possible to know the difference between authentic and inauthentic, original and copy. Reality is constructed by the codes of society, languages and conventions from history and self-ellipsed by the demise of interiority. Synthetic creation, simulation, nostalgia and the reinvention of the past, events of fiction and memories recreated Recreated and fabricated are created through signs that have gone before. This is distinct from the past, what Baudrillard calls the fetishism of lost objects. In return, is a return to the figurative when object and substance have disappeared. Walter Be Benjamin argues that the every that every original has an element that can never be captured, like loved ones. They can never be reproduced. This unique aspect of the original, according to Benjamin, the whole sphere of authenticity is outside technical 
and of course not only technical reproductibility. Artificial intelligence is developing a, a, to reproduce copies of our loved ones, but they haven't yet succeeded in essence. The original is a unique presence in time and space and will always be in the frozen past like dated fashion, culture, society and technology. The photograph is the archetype of industrial simulacrum, an infinite number of identical copies. The increasing circulation of such simulacra in society testifies to reproduction's role in the core of industrial capital, says Benjamin. Reality is subservient to the signifier. Reality is produced by the signifier and the models of signification. We move away from the society of production to consumption. The computer machine produces reality according to its codes, functionalism, form to content, object to use, the signs of reality come to replace reality. These simulated forms generate an unreal real, a real without origin, superficial surface statues, hyperreal production and artificial reality. For Benjamin, a work of art is understood from its non-autonomy. Myth and religion give the arts an aura of uniqueness. The authority of revelations legitima legitimise the place of artwork and celebrates the relationship between the drive, the divine and the human. In contrast, the modern way of reproduction is a machine that reproduces and multiplies the original into infinity. Technology is a system of delivering and managing information and creating objects that are substitutable and reproducible with little difference between the original and the copy. The authenticist Imagine seeing the original Mona Lisa painting on grand display at the Louvre in Paris and compare your experience with holding a postcard reproduction in your hand. The art looks the same, but it isn't the same because the way it is perceived as viewed is not the same. The original has decades of historians building its value and importance. This affects us too. Compare also seeing the pyramids in, e in Egypt to seeing a photograph of them in a book. The experience is different. One step further is a 21st century comparison of being in the presence of your flesh and blood bone mother and comparing her real life presence to a photograph of her or an AI replica viewed on an app. The aura or meaning of that that original conveys through feeling is not the same as viewing a copy. However, technological advances in AI can replicate and mimic the original together with the heightened emotional effects of grief and bereavement. Can mimic the effects of the original aura? Or can they? They are trying at least. I am actually been uh, using a few of these um, death tech um, services and I've posted um, about them. I might even do a podcast about them, we'll see. When I was in my early 20s, I lived and worked in a hostel in Flagstaff, Arizona, where I drove tourists to and from Grand Canyon. I have trekked up and down the canyon, experienced unbearable heat and shared the emotional experience of its scale with visitors. The vastness of the blue and purple stone canyon cannot be imagined without being there. It is an ex it's a, it is an existent sorry it's an um, existential awareness, a closeness to a divine like experience. Looking at the photographs I'd produced on five by seven prints was deflating. The mechanical reproduction couldn't capture the enormity of the canyon or the physical and emotional experience of being there. I have seen the terracotta army in Xi'an. China. Large deep pits hold thousands of life-size clay statues of warriors, horses, chariots and weapons which are individually painted so that no statue is identical. The pits are temperature controlled to protect the clay and provide respite to the brutal humidity outside. There is a feeling of insignificance in scale in the comparison to the, to the hundreds, thousands of soldiers and knowing the history behind the army and how it was discovered centuries later makes the imagination run wild and creates an aura surrounding the production. 
Fifteen years later, Liverpool's World Museum exhibited a handful of clay statues. I went along to the sold-out exhibition and came away feeling nothing. I didn't feel a sense of scale from a photograph of one of the pits or grasp the enormity of the number of clay figures, feel the cool breeze from the temperature-controlled conditions or hear the echoes of hushed voices that bounce around the pits. What is my experience being in the presence of my mother in real life compared to a photograph of her or an AI replica viewed on an app? How could I produce a faithful copy of myself that would affect those close to me? And what is our perception of human agency presented on different communication and representation devices? Does AI technology help families cope with grief or do they exploit people at their most vulnerable? What happens to our data after we die? Does humanity have a right to post-mortem privacy and dignity so that our avatar can't be used by third parties? In the physical world, the body has a right to respect and human dignity in death. Is violation of human dignity applied to the digital afterlife of the dead? And what digital traces will be left behind if you do nothing? Accidental immoralization includes your digital footprint in social network sites like Facebook. You know, after we died, a lot of our social networks will still be around, like Facebook. We don't pay for Facebook, and um, it will certainly be around for many of us. Who owns your footprint after you die? Is it big tech companies or the loved ones you le you've left behind? Access and ownership cause unintended consequences that shift societal norms and behaviours in online spaces. Mourning is mediated and managed in different social spaces. Are you prepared for the inevitable and will you take a deletionist or preservationist stance? What is the long-term impact on the bereaved when third parties control technology platforms and your data, make the rules, govern who has access and how the data is presented? Deletion of the deceased online footprint on social networks and email accounts is seen as a second loss by families and creates a new form of anticipatory grief. Putting too much weight on technology could develop a phantom of personhood that immediate grief could cause. How lots of questions to be answered there, and you know the technology is too new to uh, to know as yet. Um, you know, there's lots of research that needs to be done, and uh, to see whether it will affect grief um, or will help grief. So um, I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, I will be back very shortly with a new podcast with um, new things that are going on. Uh, in this wonderful, wonderful world of ours. Thank you.